Welcome to the Texas Values Report. This is Jonathan Sines, president of the Texas Values. Great to be with you on a Saturday afternoon in the great state of Texas. So hope you're enjoying your weekend, getting out and about. Man, we just can't shake this cold weather. I tell you what, it's annoying. And I have people, they're like, you know, gosh, it seems like this is a different time of year. I'm like, yeah, because it usually is not still cold. Anyway, the show is not about the weather. It's about faith, family, and freedom in Texas. We're going to talk a little bit of football later in the show, maybe a little Super Bowl connection on religious freedom. Um, that's going to be Travis Weber in the second segment. The first segment, though, is going to be David B. Wright. We're going to talk about some issues related to the pro-life movement, just an incredible January of a lot of events related to that issue, things that are happening at the national scene, and a little bit about what David's going to be up to in his new adventures. But Nicole Hudgens, policy analyst for Texas Values, is in the studio with me today. Good morning. Good afternoon. Welcome, Nicole. <laughs> Thank you, Jonathan. Excited to be here. It's going gonna, it's gonna to be a great show. We've got some great guests lined up. we got up. a lot of good stuff to talk about. So let's jump right in. Our first guest today is David B. Wright. You know him as the starter, the founder, if you will, of 40 Days for Life. He's got Texas Connections. He's been a pro-life advocate for quite a long time. I'll let him fill in some of the details about how far that goes back, probably since, you know, uh, well, I'll let him tell you. But he was a part of uh, starting a pro-life effort in Texas in the College Station area and then led to starting 40 Days for Life, tremendous grassroots coalition work that he did for churches, Then he moved on to D.C., where he did some work at the national level for American Life League and Stop Planned Parenthood. He's been on tons of national media and continues to have an impact on the pro-life movement, probably at a level that uh, matches just, you know, hardly matches anyone else. So he's right there, you know, probably top five, top three. You know, if you want to quantify it, he has had a dramatic impact in Texas and across the country on the life movement. He's married. He's got two children. David, welcome to the Texas Values Report. Jonathan, thank you so much for having me. Nicole, it's an honor to be here with you, and it's always great to be back with people from Texas. Uh, Every time I get back to the Lone Star State, I just realize that it's a blessing to be back in the promised land. So even to do so by radio interview today, it's a gift. So thanks for having me. Amen. There is no doubt about that. You know, and look, and tell me... I. I feel like I knew this at one point. Remind our listeners, maybe I'll say it that way. You started your work or you had some tremendous work. I, it probably didn't start there um, in 98 with the work you did regarding an abortion clinic that was going to be built there. Tell our listeners uh, a little bit more depth, not only about your pro-life work, but your Texas connection. Well, I grew up in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and uh, for most of my childhood was in a home that never talked about abortion, went to a church that never addressed abortion, and it wasn't until right after I graduated high school and I moved to Texas that I suddenly became aware of the abortion crisis. And it was while a student at Texas A&M I started to understand what the crisis was, and also while at A&M I met my now wife of 25 years, Margaret, my best friend in the world, and she had grown up in Corpus Christi, and her family had been involved in pro-life efforts that were successful over a period of a number of years of closing down every standalone abortion facility in the city of Corpus Christi. Mm -hmm. So as I started to become more aware of what abortion was, the crisis it was in terms of destroying the life of a pre-born child and hurting women and men and families, I started to feel this conviction that, oh my goodness, do I have to do something? But I was living in College Station, and at the time there wasn't an abortion center, so I thought, great, I don't have to do anything, I'm off the hook. But as you referenced, in 1998, 
the news broke that Planned Parenthood was going to build its first abortion facility in College Station, and my wife dragged me to a community meeting where people were planning, what can we do in response to this? And hundreds of people showed up that night, and it was really that night that I felt convicted to my core that I had something I was supposed to do. And even though I was scared, even though I didn't know what to do, even though I didn't think I had any discernible skills or talents which would be applicable to this fight, I really felt the Lord stirring my heart that I have some role in this. So Margaret and I got started volunteering with what became the Coalition for Life. It was started by a young church secretary named Lauren Gouldy, and we volunteered and served on the board of directors. And then three years later, after having efforts that tried to prevent Planned Parenthood from opening, those were unsuccessful, then tried to, after Planned Parenthood opened, tried to work to close it down and bring down the number of abortions, that was unsuccessful. And so I just felt like a failure as a volunteer in this work. But in 2001, I was working at the time as a pharmaceutical sales rep. I was up in the town of Hearn, about 30 miles north of College Station, and my phone rang from Lauren, the young lady who'd started the Coalition for Life, and she said, David, ten more children died at Planned Parenthood today. And for whatever reason, that day, June 26, 2001, Jonathan, that was the day when my heart just completely broke, and I felt, you know, we aren't doing everything we can possibly do to stop this. And I said to my friend Lauren, maybe I'm supposed to quit my job and just devote myself full-time to stopping this. And there was a pause, and she said, well, then why don't you do that? And so I went home. I talked to my wife. We went and talked to our pastor. We prayed, and two weeks later, I had uh, left the business world and was full-time involved in the pro-life movement and haven't looked back since. So, Well, there's no question. Yeah, there's no question you haven't looked back. I mean, and it's interesting, (laughs) right? We talk about, I mean, we're talking about 20 years ago, 98, where the spark was lit, the fire was lit, if you will. That was the year I graduated from the University of Texas. We won't talk about football in Texas, (laughs) Texas A&M controversies at this point, maybe for another show. But, you know, 20 years ago, (laughs) here you are stepping into this role. You know, for our listeners, if you go to, you know, check out David's bio, it's just got all this incredible work that you've done. But you were, there was no way for you to know where all that would lead. It started with a simple decision, a decision about life and a decision for you to feel like there was something that you could do, something was placed on your heart. Fast forward. I saw you last week, a couple of weeks ago at some of these March for Lives. You're out in San Francisco. Is that, is right. that right? That's correct. I saw you at a March for Life there. Nicole from our staff, she was at the D.C. March. Um, I was a part of one in South Texas and also in uh, here in the Austin area in Central Texas. Uh, two things. Tell us what it's like to be at a March for Life in San Francisco, of all places. <laughs> and, I mean, the 40 Days for Life movement seems like it's everywhere. Well, to answer that really quickly, first off, yes, I was with Nicole in D.C. with half a million of our closest friends on the National Mall, and then a few days later I was out in San Francisco. I was hearing reports from Chicago and Austin and South Texas and and all across the country as people were rallying, and there is definitely a, a... movement that is growing, a dynamic movement. I mean, record numbers of people are willing to come out of their homes and workplaces and places of worship to be a voice for the voiceless. Um, to, to be a part of the Walk for Life West Coast in San Francisco is incredibly inspiring because here's one of the most liberal, anti-life cities that the first year the Walk for Life was held, their then-mayor, Gavin Newsom, actually paid with city dollars protesters to counter the pro-life march. In the first year, there were 8,000 pro-lifers and 3,000 paid protesters paid by Planned Parenthood in the city of San Francisco. But the Walk for Life has continued to grow and grow. There were over 50,000 people there in the heart of San Francisco. 
and the number of protesters has dwindled down to just a few hundred. Now, they're very vocal, they're very aggressive, but the police did a wonderful job of separating. But you could see such a difference, the anger and the hostility of that handful of protesters versus the joy and the hope of 50,000 people, people of every kind of background and age and ethnicity. And it was just beautiful to see, walking right through the heart of that city, the hope and the light that is piercing through the darkness. And the same thing, as you saw in Austin, as people saw in Washington, D.C., people are making a tremendous difference. And in the same way as you referenced, Jonathan, 40 Days for Life, which began out of that little town of College Station, not far from Austin, where you're doing this show, and yet it grew to the point where it's now reached 740 cities across all 50 American states and 47 nations. Three-quarters of a million people have participated in prayer vigils outside of abortion facilities, helping to save nearly 14,000 children from abortion, helping 170 workers to leave the abortion industry, and by the grace of God, seeing 94 abortion facilities shut down and go out of business. The message of all of this for every person listening right now is you can make a difference. You can be a part of doing something that can change hearts and minds, that can save lives, and as we know, can impact eternal souls. The time is right. This is the movement that is making a profound difference, even in the midst of this cultural challenge that we're facing. And Jonathan, I want to thank you and Nicole and Texas Values for standing so firmly for life and faith and family and freedom. You have been such a powerful and articulate voice there in Austin and across the state of Texas, and I'm just honored to co-labor in the Lord's Harvest Field with you. Well, we appreciate that. I mean, you're right. The numbers for 40 Days for Life are quite extraordinary. We're talking with David B. Wright, who helped start the 40 Days for Life effort. Uh, it started in Texas. A lot of great things start in Texas, don't they? But hey, uh, we're, we're glad that you came into Texas, started your family, your studies, and then have done some great things. Nicole, you were in D.C. You think, ran into David while you were there. I think we actually did run into David uh, with our good friend Jonathan Keller, now uh, that I'm remembering. And I think we're having trouble with Nicole's mic, oh. but um, we'll, wor- we'll work through it. Here, use my mic. Here we go. Um, <laughs> so I think, David, I think we may have run into each other briefly with our good friend Jonathan Keller. Uh, we did. On the mall. Yes, I'm remembering that. And I love the point that you made that about the joy that those who are pro-life bring. I mean, I remember being at the March for Life in D.C. and seeing, one, so many students and so many young people, which was so encouraging to see that they already understand the importance of the pro-life movement and knowing that their generation is going to see the end of abortion. But uh, just appalling to think that the mayor of San Francisco would, would use taxpayer dollars to try to shut you down. shut you down. But what an encouragement that... Not only did y'all thrive in that situation, but you continue to thrive. And from the stories I've heard of what the work you've done um, has accomplished has included literally saving lives. Of I've heard stories of how at the prayer vigils, as people are out there praying, they've had encounters with these women who are considering abortion and lives, real lives have been saved. So thank you so much for the work that you're doing. Well, Nicole, thanks. And and if I can give one brief illustration of that, um, at the Texas Rally for Life that happened in Austin, one of the couples who spoke there, I was with about a week earlier in Chicago at an event, uh, Brian and Kathy Seastrunk. And they were 40 Days for Life prayer volunteers in San Antonio. They would gather in prayer outside of the Planned Parenthood facility on Babcock. And they also volunteered with the local pregnancy center that was just a few doors down. And one day, a 16-year-old girl was being driven to the abortion facility by her 
boyfriend's family who were trying to pressure her into having an abortion. And because people were praying outside, she changed her mind, went to the pregnancy center, met up with Kathy and eventually Brian, and eventually she asked them, would you adopt my son when he is born? And today that son, Isaac, is three and a half years old, and I got to see Isaac right after he was born, and then I saw him in Chicago, and he was introduced on stage with the governor and everybody else there in Austin. But these are real lives of real children that are being spared just through the faithfulness of ordinary people doing extraordinary things right where they live there in Texas and all across the country and around the world. No, you're right. We're talking with David be right, pro-life activist, pro-life uh, pioneer. I mean, there are probably a lot of adjectives we could use. We're part of, you know, started and led the first 40 Days for Life campaign. You know, the slogan this year, or, or it seemed to be pretty um, prominent, was love saves lives. And, and that fits the description of the situation you're talking about. Uh, David, we got just a few minutes left. Tell us what you're doing moving forward. I know that, you know, your, your official role with 40 Days for Life You've retired from that, if you will, and you're looking at new adventures. Can you tell us any any details about what uh, the future holds for you? Well, I will tell you what I know, and I'm still in the process of discernment and seeking that myself, along with my wife in prayer and a whole lot of, of thinking and planning. But uh, I began to feel a stirring to move beyond 40 Days for Life, because as much as God continues to do through that effort— Number one, I felt that I had given what I had to offer into that ministry. I'm an entrepreneurial guy. I like to start things and build them, and then I like to look for new challenges and new projects. And also, one of the things I started to recognize, and the reason I'm so passionate, Jonathan, about the work that you do at Texas Values, is I recognize that abortion is a symptom of a deeper root cause. And that deeper root cause is when we see the breakdown of the family, when we see attacks on religious freedom and we see our faith being undermined. And if we can't treat that cause, we will always still be putting Band-Aids on the symptom. So, yes, we need to be involved very actively, directly in the pro-life movement, but we also need to be doing things to help people understand and live out their faith. We need to be helping to rebuild the family. We need to be protecting religious freedom. Bottom line is, we need to do exactly what you and Nicole do every day. We need to rebuild the culture from the bottom up. And so that's what began to really weigh on my heart. And so my wife and I have been praying and planning as to what that next step will look like collaborating with a lot of the family policy councils around the country and just trying to figure out exactly what our place is. We thought it would become clearer more readily, but uh, God had well, a season. I think hey, he wanted us to listen and discern. You need to come by our office then. Cause as Thanks. you know, we're the Texas Family Policy Council that's associated with Focus on the Family. So look, if yeah. you um, let's talk offline about having you come by the <laughs> office. We'll visit because you've done a lot. And love, I love the entrepreneurial spirit, you know, and that just kind of almost fits with a lot of the way we are as Texans. And so before we conclude, just locally so people know, um, I'm going to share with them, there's a kickoff rally for the 40 Days for Life effort next Tuesday or this coming Tuesday, February 13th. That's at Whole Woman's Health Abortion Facility. That's 8401 North I-35. I'm going to be praying with my family, I believe uh, we're scheduled uh, next Saturday. So the 40 Days for Life campaign, this cycle is, is going on right now. For people locally, you can check out centraltexascoalition.com. David, thank you so much for being on the show with us. Thank you for the work that we do, that you do. And we actually, we look forward to seeing you in person sometime soon, maybe at our office. I would love it. And Jonathan, Nicole, God bless you. Keep up your great work. And for everybody listening, support Texas Values. Spread the word about Texas Values Report. You have an amazing organization that is transforming the culture right there in Texas. Amen. Hey, 
Thanks for having for for coming on. Look, great to have someone like David B. Right, Nicole. I mean, the guy you can just hear the passion in his voice, the energy. You know, he's probably running around the country doing a lot of stuff. It, you know, has a lot of demands on his time. Took some time to be with us, and we know that moving forward, we need people like him to stay engaged in one way or another. And it sounds like that's what he's going to do. We're going to go to our next guest in the show today. We've got Travis Weber, who is the director of the Center for Religious Liberty at the Family Research Council. He is a Navy pilot. He's a Regent Law grad, and he's also a, um, a Georgetown grad. And I think I got his bio backwards on that. I apologize. Oh, I'm sorry. He has his LLM, excuse me, from Georgetown. I was talking the other day about that. I was like, man, what's that like to go for your to, all the way to your LLM? Maybe we'll have Travis talk about that, but we're going to mainly talk about religious liberty. Travis, welcome to the Texas Values Report. Thanks for having me on. Great. Well, hey, look, you know, there's been a lot going on in the area of religious liberty. We've got some stuff we're going to be dealing with in Texas, uh, some testimony we're going to be giving in a couple of weeks. You know, you see things from a national perspective, and there's a lot of talk about some of these issues in Texas because, you know, we have elections coming up. People are wondering, you know, where people stand on certain issues. And and we've got this huge court case that's up at the U.S. Supreme Court, the Masterpiece Cake Bakers case. And I recently saw on y'all's website, there's a case out of North Carolina, Gail, I don't know if I'm going to say her name the right way, Gail Myrick, that just settled an issue with North Carolina. A lot to talk about, not to mention a little faith in football, okay? Tony Dungy coming out, talking about his faith and getting some backlash. Really interesting stuff. You choose which one you want to pick from, from a national <laughs> perspective and what you think is, uh, is happening out there. Yeah, so, you know, there's a lot of significant developments recently on religious freedom. Um, you know, I think um, uh, on the international front, we've got the comfort, or the the, in, um, the induction and, and uh, of Ambassador-at-Large for International Religious Freedom, Sam Brownback. He's going to be starting his new role. And domestically, I think all, all these items are significant, but the North Carolina Magistrate Settlement is very significant for several reasons, you know, and I can kind of go into that, but that's a great development. No, I want to hear you talk more about that because we worked on uh, some legislation. The state of Texas had some legislation last year that dealt with county clerks and magistrates and wanting to have something specific in law so if the question ever comes up, government officials know where the lines are drawn and what the rules are. So tell us a little bit more about this case. Yeah, so this is a, a state um, public servant who simply, uh, after you know, same-sex marriage was constitutionalized and you know enforced in all 50 states by the Supreme Court, uh, states are now required per that decision to issue and recognize same-sex marriage licenses. You know, you have public servants like this one who say, okay, that's the law, but my conscience forbids me to be involved in it, furthering it, authorizing it, facilitating it. I just don't want to be involved but someone else would be happy to provide the license. That's kind of the basic framework. You have a number of these issues kind of popping up around the country. And, um, you know, so this, this, this um, magistrate just says, don't involve me. And, um, you know, she's forced to resign, provokes a lawsuit. Now that lawsuit settles. This is significant, though, because a lot of what we've heard is, you know, that, that such positions by public service are just unacceptable, it's discriminatory, not allowed, et cetera. Uh, in the public conversation, that's kind of what we're hearing. But it's actually a quite reasonable way forward in the current climate. Um, it allows the license to be issued. 
and yet it allows the religious freedom of these objecting individuals to be protected. And so the fact that we don't know the precise reasons for a settlement in this kind of scenario could be several different reasons, but certainly the state felt some legal liability or had some significant reason for wanting to settle, and um, uh, th that matters, because if, if it was so clear, as in the minds of many advocates who were opposing this, these religious freedom positions, if it was so clear that this was just unacceptable, well, then the state would not have settled. The state would have, uh, you know, continued uh, pursuing its route of forcing her out of, out of public service and not compensating her. So their compensating her shows the legitimacy of religious freedom law, the reasonableness and legitimacy of the position taken that you can have the license issued by someone else, yet accommodate magistrates' religious freedom. And this is kind of the template we're seeing in all sorts of religious freedom issues, whether it's freedom of adoption agencies, schools, other public servants. You know, it's the template we need to follow. Really, this is the one followed by the Mississippi law that got a lot of pushback. But really, all that law does is say someone has an objection, they can opt out of the process, someone else will supply the license or, or whatever the issue is. So that's what, you know, I think it's significant because it shows the reasonableness of the framework, the religious freedom exemption framework that we really have been operating off of for years. It applies to this type of situations, and it's a workable solution. There's no doubt. We're talking with Travis Weber, director of Center for Religious Liberty for Family Research Council. He's not only a lawyer with a JD, he's got his LLM, Nicole. He's a master of law. Well, I'm going to bring Nicole Hudgens into the segment with us, who's an alumni of Family Research Council. Nicole, you heard Travis talk about this issue and talk about, you know, some of the other instances that come up. One of those is faith-based adoption care and agencies who we know, we know we now have a specific law like that in Texas. California is boycotting taxes. So you've seen this up front, how important it is to have some of these things specifically in law when they come up and they're challenged. Absolutely. We've seen that in Texas, 25% of faith-based child welfare or child welfare providers are faith-based. <laughs> I need some more coffee this morning. Uh but, you know, Travis, we just so appreciate the work that you're doing at Family Research Council. And from a religious liberty standpoint, we're seeing where county clerks, where faith-based child welfare providers, their religious liberty um, is under attack right now. And so they need to be able to have the freedom to operate according to their sincerely held religious beliefs. Uh, it's common sense. It's in the First Amendment. Uh, this is a really important issue, though. So we're thankful for the work that you guys are doing on alerting uh, the nation on what's happening on these issues. And I think some good news that has come out of D.C. recently even was the creation of the religious conscious department that came from the Trump administration to make sure that when it comes to the Department of Health and Human Services, you know, in the past, HHS has been an opponent of religious liberty. Uh, but under this administration, the creation of this new department has been really, uh, really encouraging for those of us who are in the states and seeing what the federal government is now doing to now protect religious liberty. Yeah, very much so. Um, in addition to the the new rules regarding the the, um, the contraception mandate, which had resulted in years of litigation from the Little Sisters, Hobby Lobby, and others, in addition to resolving that and saying, look, you know, if, if organizations or entities want to be protected, they can have that protection. Um, they, they've created this new division, which is promising, very significant in the process of being finalized and formalized at this point. But you've got a number of federal laws 
requiring conscience to be protected in the in the life uh, situation, life context, uh, abortion, abortion causing drugs, etc. A number of these different federal provisions requiring conscience to be protected, often on condition of removal of funds, if that's not the case, need to be implemented, enforced, and kind of filter, you know, the water needs to filter into the cracks, so to speak, because you've had cases pop up around the country where entities and individuals are discriminated against because of their pro-life views, their conscience is not protected, and there's certainly a lot of gray area out there. This is going to protect people, going to eliminate the gray area, and give the federal government a, um, a real way to put teeth on this, and not just uh, words. In no, you're protecting right. Protecting conscience, so many areas. You're right. We're talking with Travis Weber, director of Center for Religious Liberty at Family Research Council. He is a lawyer. You know, we're talking about this case in North Carolina, where this magistrate uh, went up against the state because they restricted her religious liberty beliefs. They forced her out of her position. I, I think. Um, the article I read suggested that she was fired or that she was forced out in some discrimination. And this is how kind of, you know, uh, how how up I try to stay with Family Research Council, Travis, a little little nod and compliment to you guys. I think your story came up about an hour ago on your Twitter feed and I was on top of it. No, but look, the article says that there was $300,000 that she was awarded. That's a lot of money for the government to turn over. And I'm not going to read too much between the lines, but I think it's pretty clear when that kind of money gets exchanged, you know, there was some concern and the law was not on their side or the facts were not on their, the side of the government. There was it appears to be some type of violation um, that they did not want to go further with. And, you know, look, this is not the goal to try to get money from government entities, but it is a message that it will cost you as a government if you tread on someone's religious liberty. And look with the work y'all do at Family Research Council, that's the benefit of having good policy in state law and at the federal level so people know where the lines are so they can't use it against you and you can tell the government, hey, you're going too far. Exactly. Um, you know, we know a big chunk of the settlement was for her back compensating her loss of income from, from being forced out with back pay and front pay. Um, and I think really this does set a template for others in terms of how they approach this religious freedom issue. If we take this over to the adoption context, adoption provider context we've already mentioned, you look at, in Michigan, they passed a law protecting these providers. ACLU has sued them, claiming this is unconstitutional, discriminatory on several grounds, and, you know, trying to force these faith-based providers out of that space. What's going to happen to the kids? You're going to have a lot of kids who are served by these providers. The ACLU really wants those kids to not have a, possibly not have a provider to care for them. This is not about tolerance. In their mind, they're not even allowing for tolerance and acceptance of different views and accommodation. They want to force out people who don't agree. They would rather this magistrate be fired and, and not allowed to, to, um, uh, to accommodate, to have her conscience accommodated. It's a very anti-conscience, anti-freedom position to take. Thankfully, you know, this case settled favorably to her. This type of reasoning needs to be taken over to that adoption context, because if it was, you would say, well, perfectly reasonable for faith-based providers to be in this space, along with those who want to provide, uh, put children in, in same-sex households. Both are in this space. Why does the LCLU have a problem with that? It's really, there's no good answer to that. No, and you look, we saw this after the Obergefell decision, the same-sex marriage decision at the U.S. Supreme Court, that ACLU came out and announced 
we withdraw our support from the L Religious Freedom Restoration Act, a law that had been in place at the federal level, signed by President Clinton, in place for almost 20 years, and all of a sudden they're retreating from it because now they realize that that, that religious freedom applies to everyone and people are going to start saying, well, my religion tells me that I support a ma between a man and a woman. Oh, no, 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 we don't want religious freedom in those contexts. So we got to keep our eye on these things. Travis, we're short on time today. We're going to run, but I want it before I do, I want to thank you, Tony Perkins, all of y'all's team, Kana Gonzalez at Family Research Council, and <coughs> excuse me, and thank you for your service to our country as a Navy pilot in the in the uh, fantastic work you did during that time of your life. And we appreciate the relationship we have with your organization. And God bless what you continue to do. And we look forward to having you back on the show sometime soon. Thanks to you. Appreciate you guys too. Thanks for having me on. Great. Well, that was fun to get David B. Wright and Travis Weber into one show. That's a lot to cover. We didn't even talk about the fact that this daddy-daughter dance got canceled. We gotta have, yeah. We're going to have to cover that on next show because of gender identity and sexuality, SOGI issues. A lot happened this week, but we hit some of the highlights. That's why you got to go to our website, txvalues.org, to stay engaged. Where else can they find us, Nicole? They can also find us on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram as well. So we encourage you to stay up to date with what's happening at Texas Values at txvalues.org, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And we are a nonprofit organization. You can invest in us with a tax-deductible donation at txvalues.org. Give today. We'll see you next week on the Texas Values Report.